Hey, what's up? Welcome to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I'm really excited to be sharing today's episode with you. It's a little bit different than episodes of the past. We're experimenting with some new formats here. Today's quote-unquote guest is Venkatesh Rao. He is the editor and founder of Ribbon Farm, one of my favorite blogs on the entire internet and a particular favorite of many of the online digital entrepreneurs, uh, tropical MBA students will be well aware of his writing and work. But in a previous episode, uh, I was inspired to name some of my greatest influences, folks who I really follow and try to break down their messages, what they're doing, and learn from their superior intellect and experience. Uh, Venkatesh Rao was on that list and is is really you know, come to prominence for me in the last uh, year or so as a thinker that I just really admire and has delivered multiple revolutions of thought, so to speak. So in today's episode, uh, what I did was I found an interview that he did with Real Vision TV, which is a media company that, that makes media basically aimed at major hedge funds, other big investors. And uh, Rao was interviewed by them, but demanded that his interview be made public. So that's up on YouTube, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, it's a big, you know, over hour-long interview, very intellectually dense. But there were two great little snippets within that interview that I wanted to share with you. And the first that we'll get into here in just a sec is understanding uh, my own generation. You know, we've mentioned before the millennials are often maligned for all these different criticisms, be it laziness, a lack of focus, flakiness. And I just really fundamentally disagree with that. I think at times uh, we can be aimless, but that is really the underlying force, the, the search that we are all going through for purpose, for vision. And he, Rao and Venkatesh once again has a very interesting take on millennials and a previous generation that he believes we compare very closely to. So here is Venkatesh Rao on millennials. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Uh, the millennial generation, which, oh God, that's become such a term of... Yeah, it's tiring. Anyway, but within like the more narrow Strasshoff model, uh, millennials are like the greatest generation. So the last generation that was like them is the greatest generation that won World War II and turned into institution builders right after that, right? They built the big companies of the post-World War II era. They did the Marshall Plan in Europe. So they're fundamentally institution builders by sort of uh, psychology. And th that's because if you're sort of coming of age, consciousness forming events are all centered around things falling apart. Uh, it doesn't matter what your temperament is, you will want to rebuild as sort of part of your core. Like, uh, I'm Generation X, and for us, it was like, you know, the events of the 80s, the fall of the wall, it was more like the tail end of decline. Whereas for millennials, it's been, well, on the one hand, the internet has been a massively empowering thing for them, so they feel a huge sense of their own agency, their ability to hack, um, and sort of almost a vast territory where traditional ethics haven't even been extended like nobody really knows what the what good or bad means on the internet really we're no. just beginning to find out so that's on the sort of agency side of what the millennials have discovered for themselves the power to shape reality in sort of a wilderness where 
societal norms haven't yet extended. But on the other hand, their coming-of-age events have also included, well, 9-11, the subprime crash, uh, huge crippling student uh, debt, uh, the rise of Trump. We saw uh, Bernie's campaign. So this is a generation that, whether it likes, likes it or not or wants to or not, has to get good at institution building really fast. Otherwise, there won't be any institutions for their future. But what are their institutions? What are the institutions they're going to build? In your, you know, what's your thought process on that? This because is... they're a very disparate group, as you point mm-hmm. out. A lot of people say millennials. They're not. There's a whole group. There's the, the, yeah. the destroyers, the creators, and then there's the whole group who opt out in the middle. And it's very difficult to put these as a cohesive force. Exactly. And a couple of thoughts, thoughts there. First, I think they're truly given a bad rap by boomers who project their own sort of dark traits onto them. Like boomers like to pretend that uh, millennials are entitled little brats. They're not. They're like the first generation shaped by serious wars in quite a while. Like, I mean, who fought Iraq? Who fought Afghanistan? These are millennial soldiers. They've been shaped by war. They've been shaped by economic turmoil. Yes, they grew up in slightly privileged 90s circumstances, but fundamentally they've had a very, very tough uh, life coming of age. It costs like, um, I don't know, four or five times more their typical annual income to buy a house than their parents did. So it does feel hypocritical when their parents say things like, oh, when I was your age, I'd already, you know, gotten a job and I had bought my house and blah, blah, blah. It's, yeah, your house was worth one year's salary, right? So, so, that's just my little defense of uh, millennials. But you're right. There's a huge variety. You've got millennials in the Middle East who are, uh, you know, who were part of leading the Arab Spring. You've got uh, millennials who are going to like face the brunt of the European debt crisis and how to recover from that. You've got all these kids um, in Southeast Asia and parts of Africa who are sort of coming of age with smartphones. And of course, the U.S. is the place where people pay most attention to the U.S. American millennialist or the archetype. But even there, you have a lot of variation. Uh, Yes, you've got sort of these precious snowflake types who seem to constantly be on Instagram uh, preening and presenting (laughs) themselves. But you've also got people who've built enormous new institutions already. Like uh, take WordPress, the blogging platform. I use it. I'm almost 42 now. And my entire life lives off this platform built by a millennial who's probably a decade younger than me, Matt Mullenweg, right? And um, WordPress runs about, uh, I think it's like close to 20% of the internet's websites today. That's an institution. That's a true institution. Kickstarter is an institution. Wikipedia is an institution. Uh, All these things. It's just that when older generations think of what constitutes an institution, they have this notion of like big, ivy-covered buildings and historical traditions. So they don't recognize these new institutions taking shape. But at the same time, um, the existing institutional tradition is not going to go away because this is one thing that has been a big insight for me in my Breaking Smart uh, Season 2 research, which is institutions have vastly more inertia and longevity than um, things like businesses. Uh, Take, for example, the German bureaucracy, which is in many ways considered the archetype of modern uh, centralized states and modern bureaucracies. That was developed in the 
towards the end of the 18th century, and it actually has still still exists. It lasted through two world wars. It lasted through a fascist uh, uh, Hitler era. It lasted through a social democrat kind of era, and it's now facing Syrian refugees and so forth. So the German bureaucracy, much as we might like to vilify bureaucracies, is an institution that has survived for several hundred years. And the internet and internet-based institutions are not going to like displace them and create this brave new anarchy out of like you know blank canvas. It's going to be how are these institutions going to evolve? And you can go elsewhere, right? I mean, the Catholic Church is like a two thousand year old institution. That's also going to change. It's not going to go away anytime soon. So yeah, uh, millennials are going to do a lot of uh, institutional creative destruction, and they're good at it. I love that quote, and it really begs the question, asking you, the listener, what institutions are you destroying or building or reshaping? You know, this medium podcasting is fast at work, destroying the radio networks of old and reshaping media as a more personalized, fragmented experience. And we've seen this play out and affect business, its affect politics, and is going to continue to affect culture in ways probably more numerous than we can even count or anticipate. Uh, But personally, this also is more than radio for me. It's a disruption of advertising. It's a disruption of media and a disruption of how you find the products that you're interested in, how you find the experiences that you want to consume. It's disrupting the opinions that you're sharing and the conversations that you're making. So I take that very, very seriously. And those conversations are playing out at a faster and faster rate. There's all sorts of buzzwords and forces at work that we are all aware of, but sometimes we lack clarity on what's really going on. So we're going to take it back to Venkatesh one more time to talk about data, blockchain, and finance. This is obviously a little specific to the audience that he is speaking to in this interview, uh, but I think we can all learn a lot from it. Yeah. So uh, there's a couple of very interesting threads there. So Data and finance are almost like two parallel threads. So uh, to talk about blockchain first, um, the recent, uh, I don't know if you were following the DAO hack, um, that was kind of a very interesting and revealing coming of age moment because that experiment, it was slightly shoddily built, but it it had certain utopian sensibilities behind it. And a lot of blockchain uh, thinking, you do see a certain amount of utopian sensibilities. It's the people who get attracted to blockchain as a way of um, you know, reinventing the whole world are the same people who kind of dream about finding a desert island somewhere and rebuilding society from scratch on yeah. like, you know, John Galt principles. That's right. There's a libertarian element. Exactly. And the key part of that is not so much the libertarian philosophy, but this sort of strong urge to have like kind of a political and cultural amnesia and forget and wipe out everything that came before. And that, I don't think, is going to happen... Uh, with anything. Yes, uh, as the Republican Party kind of melts down and traditional religiously focused conservatism starts to sort of, you know, go into its reactionary tail phase and libertarianism rises, maybe we'll see like a vast reordering of the political order where maybe in the in the US you have the Democrats emerging as like a more Europe-style social Democrat political force. Maybe the Libertarian Party grows up a little bit. 
and sort of goes mainstream and sort of acknowledges its own history and sort of becomes part of the historical tradition. And that's where a lot of uh, sort of somewhat precious things come out of, like, you know, the love for manifestos. Like, I, I love making fun of people who love manifestos. It's like... Uh, to me, yeah, but you're a cynical Generation Xer like me. <laughs> um, it's partly cynicism of Generation X, but partly it's like people forget how much the inertia of history shapes how you even think about your new utopias. And uh, so, so I do make fun of that. But on the other hand, data, the other thread you brought up, what is data other than sort of just a new way of just you know, relating to history. Like Paul Graham, actually, Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, he had a very smart quote that uh, history is just all the data we have so far, which is literally true. And if you look at sort of uh, some of the other technologies that are coming up alongside blockchain, they are very interesting to think about in relation to data. So for example, yes, these big platform companies like Google and Facebook, they're like collecting, you know, exabytes of data. But until about, uh, a decade ago, we didn't know what to do with it. Like yeah. the NSA still has like piles of drone data it can't like actually do anything with. But deep learning, which is a big new trend coming up, that's almost uh, uh, from the ground up a technology designed to like consume and process huge, huge amounts of data. Like the more data you can feed it, the better. There's this wonderful paper by um, people at Google. Uh, it's called... Uh, the unreasonable effectiveness of data, that it kind of sparked the big data movement. And the premise there is that it's better to have more data and simpler algorithms than to have complex algorithms and less data. And this has been behind lots of successes already, like automated machine translation, biometrics. Uh, computers are already better at recognizing faces on like uh, video cameras. So as they get better and better and start doing more and more things, this data is going to actually go from being sort of a dead frozen asset that's depreciating in value sitting on servers to a live appreciating asset that that almost has like a, a return rate, an interest rate applied to it based on how much intelligence you're applying to it. And it's not just big data technologies and deep learning technologies, it's other things like, you know, virtual reality, like virtual reality and augmented reality. Uh, think of something like um, uh, a, a corporation's uh, institutional memory. Right now, when we think of a corporation's institutional memory, we are talking about like, you know, maybe 10 years of uh, data warehouses, maybe going back another 30, 40 years, you have like microfilm, microfiche. And if it's a really old company or institution, like say JP Morgan, with a couple of hundred years of history behind it, well, 125 or whatever at this point, the oldest records will be in the form of like, you know, handwritten paper letters and things like that. But we now have the technology where you could sort of take like a largest company like Google, put cameras everywhere, record everything that goes on. And you could actually create like an um, institutional eidetic memory where a new employee joining in say 2035 can say, all right, I need to get caught up on the history of Google and all the important things that have happened. Hit rewind and I can actually be in the room where Larry Page made this uh, big decision and understand the context of how that evolved. That's becoming possible because uh, uh, it's, as somebody, I forget who it was, I think it was um, Dyson who uh, defined big data as it's big data when it's cheaper to store data than to decide what to do with it. And processing in Moore's law terms, that's already in sort of its diminishing returns, but storage and memory are getting are still going on really fast um, cost decline curves. And it's going to get cheaper and cheaper to store more and more and more data. And at some point it'll be like, you will have this, eidetic prosthetic memory of uh, histories of institutions and individuals like uh, 
DARPA ran a project about 10 years back called, I think it was called LifeLog or something, uh, which was to explore technology to log everything in your life. If you look at sort of what children in high school or undergrad are taught is a scientific method, that's really a kind of proceduralized, bureaucratized version of uh, science that really benefits certain institutions like funding agencies that need a certain amount of legibility. They need clear metrics like, you know, impact factor, citations, what to fund. So it's set up for that. It's not, it has nothing to do with science in the spirit of the way it's done. Once again, just profoundly intellectual. Love his thought process and depth of thought that he puts into his answers. And he said something in there about having cultural amnesia, that not be really being reality and the fact that we have to embrace reality. I think that that is so important. We have to embrace the fact that this is not the generation of our parents or their parents. Uh, while we are playing out similar themes and trends and history has a way of rhyming, I think we have to embrace the reality that we are in a world that's getting more and more globalized uh, and flatter. We are, you know, I'm recording this right now from Chiang Mai, Thailand. And I know for a fact that people all over the globe are listening to this. That is really powerful and it changes the way our tribes work, our social networks come together, where the connections happen, how many friends you have. And so that's really just ideas we're going to continue to explore in this show. Connection, technology, entrepreneurship, globalization, among many, many more. I would love your feedback for future topics on episodes as well as feedback for shows like this one. I hope that it helped you think a little bit harder and I hope that you have a fantastic day. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.